0: at least 31 people have died trying to get to britain this afternoon after a boat capsized in the channel tonight on tisky sour we're going to discuss the tragedy and the political context which allowed it to happen to discuss this difficult topic i'm joined for the whole show by barnaby rain you'll know barnaby from previous shows but this is the first time we've had him on as a co-host so welcome to
1: tisky sour thanks so much michael it's great to be here
0: Going to be talking about other topics later in the show. We'll be talking about Nadine Doris and another Tory politician successfully sued by Jeremy Corbyn. Um, Let's go straight to our first story. At least 31 people have died trying to get to Britain after a boat capsized in the Channel. According to the International Organization for Migration, the tragedy represents the biggest single loss of life in the Channel since they began collecting data in 2014. Newsnight's Louis Goodall is in Calais and he has reported that the boat which capsized was one of around 25 that attempted to cross the channel today. Goodall has suggested that because worse weather is expected to arrive soon, many saw today as their last chance to get to Britain. This is of course a developing story, details are yet to emerge about the identity of the victims or the precise circumstances of, of the tragedy, that's why we're going to focus on the politics of this, and in the past hour Britain's
2: Prime Minister gave this response. I just want to say that I'm shocked and appalled and deeply saddened by the loss of life that uh, see in the, in the channel, um, I think that the, the details are, are still coming in, but uh, more than 20 people have have lost their lives as, 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 you know. And my, my thoughts and sympathies are first of all with the, the victims and, and their families. And, uh, it's a, an appalling thing that they have, uh, that they have suffered. But I also want to say that this disaster underscores how dangerous it is to cross the channel in this way.
0: Now, I viewed those comments as as pretty cynical, not only because Boris Johnson's government has been spending the past weeks and months spreading lies about migrants. We're going to talk about those on tonight's show, but also because he couldn't resist the chance to use this tragedy as an opportunity to discourage desperate people from coming to Britain. He's saying, oh, I know this is, of course, a tragedy, but also let's remember um, because these 20 people died, don't try and seek a better life. Barnaby, as I've said, I don't want to ask you about the details of this because we don't know too many of them right now. We're going to talk about the political context, the media context of this. Can I just get your first thoughts, though, about the events um, that have happened today?
1: This ought to be a turning point. 20 people dying, trying merely to reach a life of safety and dignity in which they can raise their families with some decency. Something has gone deeply wrong when political leaders react with a two-second soundbite of horror at the deaths of 20 people, followed immediately by a pivot to defending their policy of ensuring that more people die. It's been the policy of European leaders, at least since the migration crisis in 2015, to come up with a whole architecture of strengthening their fortress Europe, canceling Mare Nostrum, the rescue fleet in the Mediterranean, um, and then uh, launching instead a Frontex fleet designed to deflect migrants and, uh, and ensure that people drown at sea or are taken back to Libya and Turkey. I think we'll have more time to talk about what's happening in Europe. Now, the British state is trying to mimic that European infrastructure on a kind of micro level in the channel. Um, uh, Talked of mobilizing the Navy uh, as if we're facing an invading army, when in fact we're facing desperate people who just want safety. It should be chilling to everyone to imagine ourselves in this position, a position of such desperation that the sea feels safer than staying at home, or feels more secure, or feels like it has uh, more hope of uh, being able to offer a decent future. And in that setting of fleeing and desiring that those who have some authority and some power would be our protectors, instead to see them pull up the drawbridge um, and, and mobilize against us. It's important to say that scenes like this are becoming the new normal. Um, And like our normality now of living with uh, COVID deaths every day that would have shocked us at the beginning of this pandemic and now just fade into the background, like the birth of industrial capitalism a couple of centuries ago, where uh, massive urban suffocation and and poverty uh, was gradually normalized, though it would shock people a few centuries earlier. We risk normalizing suffering so that the era that we're about to enter will be an era of migration determined by climate change, in which huge numbers of people will flee parts of the world that are increasingly uninhabitable. And we have to try to do our best to ensure that it is not simply normalized in our politics, that people drown and people are isolated in secret facilities, as is happening now on the border between Poland and Belarus, um, and people are abandoned to their fates while they flee the destruction wrought normally by the mighty and powerful of the world, normally from offices in London and New York incredibly well put we'll be touching on on lots
0: of those issues this evening looking at the immediate context of this as i said in the in the introduction the international organization for migration say this is the single biggest loss of life that's happened in the channel in a day since 2014 and presumably since before that because that's when they began collecting data the immediate context of that is that there are um, a lot more channel crossings this year than there have been in the past and um, this is a graph from the bbc based on home office data so what this shows I mean is it in 2021 so far there have been over 25,000 people um, crossing the channel in boats that's compared to under 10,000 in 2020 and you're just looking at a sort of a couple of thousand in, in 2019 so clearly this route is being used much more than it has been previously however and I think this is something that is under discussed that's not necessarily because more people are trying to get to Britain but that this route is now more attractive than other routes and when i say attractive obviously i mean less disastrous than other routes of course getting from france to britain the other route is by lorry through the channel tunnel it seems plausible to me that what is particular about this year is that covid and brexit have made that route slightly more difficult I've also read that technology could have something to do with this. I want to quote a a recent article from Euronews. They say lorries have waned in popularity as the length of time needed for a successful crossing has lengthened due to technological advances. Claire Millett from the Salaam Migrant Welfare NGO told Euronews that a decade ago it would usually take three weeks for a migrant to successfully cross the English Channel stashed away on a lorry to curb such crossings. Dogs were deployed followed by carbon dioxide detectors which flag whether someone is breathing even if they are well hidden. Now, lorries are randomly put through scanners and the average crossing time is counted in terms of months instead of weeks. So this is a classic example of how by disincentivizing one dangerous route, authorities merely push desperate people to take an even more dangerous route. We'll stop migration by checking the lorries. What does that lead to? More people trying to come to Britain By boat. The obvious humane solution to this would be to find routes for safe travel to offer people an opportunity to apply for asylum in Britain before they have to risk their life. But um, I'm afraid to say the political culture of this country shows no sign of this happening. We have a bunch of examples of of how migrants have been talked about in recent weeks in Britain. Um, First, this is Dan Wooten. This is just from yesterday, so very recent, on GB News. The illegal migrant crisis is now a national emergency. It puts the job security of the Home Secretary Priti Patel under threat, and perhaps if he can't turn it around fast, even the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It undermines the security of the Conservative Party with the possibility of a rival to the right emergency with devastating electoral consequences, just like UKIP and the Brexit Party in the past. It makes a total mockery of our legal immigration system But most importantly, above anything else, it puts the safety of the British public at risk. And that is totally unacceptable. That was Dan Witten using the classic far-right tactic of making anyone seeking asylum out to be a threat. It sounds even more despicable, even more disgusting after today's events. You could take Dan Whitton more seriously when he talks about public safety if he hadn't spent the past two years spreading COVID misinformation. This is not a guy who cares about public safety. This is a guy who wants to spread hate to increase his own paycheck because he thinks it sells. Of course, it's not just Britain's pound shop, Tucker Carlson, who's spreading fear about a so-called migrant crisis. Sorry, this was an exchange between the BBC's Andrew Marr and Health Secretary Sajid Javid on the weekend. I think you have to ask the question, if you are a genuine asylum seeker, why have you not claimed asylum already if you're in a safe country? Now, France is a safe country. uh, and, And I think we are also right as a country to provide safe harbor and protection to people suffering genuine persecution, as we are doing at the moment to thousands of Afghans. We're absolutely right to do that. But if you are already in France or you've traveled to France from Italy, let's say, or Germany, why haven't you already claimed asylum? That was Sajid Javid questioning why a genuine refugee wouldn't have claimed asylum in France, Italy or Germany. We'll return to that oft-repeated talking point in one moment. First though, let's look at some lies about migrants spread by Priti Patel. Here she is speaking to a Lords Select Committee this October.
3: And who are suffering serious threat to life. What we are seeing and all the data and evidence has shown this, so in the last 12 months alone, 70% 70% of those individuals that have come to our country illegally by small boats are single men who are effectively economic migrants. They are not genuine asylum seekers. They are literally elbowing because they're able to pay the smugglers, they're able to get in contact with the gangs, whether it's in northern France or actually in Germany. These are the ones that are elbowing the women and children who are basically at risk and fleeing persecution.
0: That was emotive stuff. The people arriving are not refugees. They are men elbowing genuine women and children in need. These are essentially selfish people who are trying to get here. They're elbowing out people who are really in need. It's, it's nasty language. It's inflammatory language. It's also based on stats which are entirely untrue. So Priti Patel said 70% of people who are arriving are single men who are essentially economic migrants. She couldn't provide any evidence that that is the case. And the Refugee Council have done a study which shows that 61% of migrants who travel by boat are in fact likely to be granted refugee status. So the Guardian report that the Refugee Council analyzed channel crossings and asylum outcomes between January 2020 and June 2021, The charity found that 91% of people who traveled by boat across the channel came from 10 countries where human rights abuses and persecution were common. These were Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, Iraq, Sudan, Vietnam, Kuwait, Ethiopia, Eritrea and Yemen. They go on. According to the Home Office, 98% of people coming across the channel apply for asylum. The report sets out the likely outcome of their asylum claims based on what is known as the grant rate. It finds that the majority of people crossing the channel are likely to be recognised as being in need of protection At the initial stage. So, her idea that 70% of these people are economic migrants and they're single men is she's plucked that out of thin air. That's not to say we should demonize economic migrants who are single men. Yes, single men also want to find a better life and potentially increase their life chances. But if you're going to demonize migrants, at least get your facts right, pretty. Let's go back to the point that Sajid Javid made. So, Sajid Javid in that interview with Andrew Ma, which you saw, said, It goes against someone. We don't consider someone to be an asylum seeker if they didn't just claim it in France, Germany, Italy. These are all safe places. What's their problem? Why couldn't they do it there? Two big problems with that. So first, obviously, people come to Britain for a variety of reasons. If you're fleeing war, you might prefer to go somewhere where you have family connections, where you speak the language, where you think you have a chance of getting work. That's completely reasonable. And it's within international law, by the way. You are allowed to decide in which country you claim asylum second if you think britain is suffering from too much migration as sajid javid appears to it doesn't make much sense to tell people to apply for asylum in germany or france that's because the number of refugees in germany france and italy compared to britain other than italy right now they are higher let's get up this because this is something which i think is is under discussed in the british media and mainstream politics where it's always made out that britain is bearing this unique burden of asylum seekers coming here now I don't think asylum seekers are a burden, but even if you did, that's just nonsense. The numbers, they just disprove that completely. So Germany has a refugee population of 1.2 million people. By the way, it's also worth noting that 60% of Germans think the integration of refugees has gone well. So it's not that that led to total societal collapse and the rise of the far right. No, we've actually got a new social democratic government in Germany. France has a refugee population of 430,000 people. So when we complain, oh, why, why are France sending over all of these refugees? Actually they take in almost four times as many refugees as, as Britain does. The UK is only 132,000 people. For some reason, we think that's a crisis. Um, Italy is home to 128,000 um, refugees. Of course, refugee means that your, your asylum claim has been accepted. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if there were more, more undocumented people in Italy, because obviously, it's, it, it's closer to the places where people set off. Barnaby, obviously, xenophobia isn't a particularly British thing. That's dominant in many societies, let alone being present in many societies. This idea, though, that, that Britain is sort of uniquely affected by migration, do you think that's that's something that's particular to Britain or do you think everyone always thinks that their country is the one which is where most migrants go? Is that something about Britain or is that something that's universal across polities?
1: Well, of course, we're seeing an anti-migrant politics gain strength across European countries and in the United States uh, in recent years as well. There is a particular British history around the move from a, an imperial nation, which wasn't simply racialized. You know, when the Windrush generation came to Britain, they were British citizens because they were citizens of an empire, um, to a uh, conception of the national polity beginning in the 1960s, uh, limiting migrants who were not white. And who were therefore not considered properly British anymore, even though they'd previously been citizens of of the empire. Um, So so there's a kind of particular slow shift in the British case from a multiracial empire, though obviously not multiracial in a happy way, to a nation. And then in the late 1970s, uh, Margaret Thatcher stealing national front votes by saying that we were at risk of being swamped by people from a different culture. That line that sort of sent shivers in the end of the 1970s down lots of people's spines. Very similar to the contemporary European Union where Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, uh, wanted to have a a vice president for protecting our European way of life who would be responsible for keeping out migrants explicitly. So there is a particular British history which is also inserted within uh, more general European dynamics. But I also think what we found in Britain in recent decades is this pattern where politicians consistently talk up the problem, right from Thatcher saying we were being swamped and then complain that no one's talking about it, uh, politicians and journalists alike. So consistently whip up panics about migration, often on the right uh, because it's an easy way for them to try to gain the support of working class people who they're actually shafting. So they'll consistently whip up panics about migration while also telling everyone that it's the one thing you're not allowed to talk about and a liberal elite prevents us uh, from talking about it. Um, but I also want, I think the panic is sustained by a view that we really have to contest, which is a view that this world we inhabit is basically unalterable and natural, that there will always be vast swathes of the world uh, that people want to flee. So think about the the problem of climate refugees uh, as an example of this. Uh, As people leave areas that have become uninhabitable, uh, the left's demand obviously has to be both that people should have safety and should have safe passage to places of safety, and also that we should try to protect the world from the devastation of fossil capital and try to ensure that more and more of the world doesn't become uninhabitable. Well, that's a general model. We should both be having a politics that wants to give people safety and safe passage to reach Safety, uh, whatever they're fleeing, whether it's poverty or war, not the pitting of poverty against war that the refugee migrant distinction performs, uh, so that everyone loses out. Um, But we should also be trying to imagine and fight for a world in which people don't need to leave vast swathes of it, so that the increasing numbers of people traveling across the world represents a really global uh, question, especially for socialists, which is what kind of world do we want to build, both where people don't die and drown at borders, and also where people don't need to make those perilous journeys at all?
0: Labour's position on this isn't great, but they do keep bringing up the aid cut. I mean, that's an easy way out because obviously it's not just because we cut aid that people are traveling. It's because also we, we keep bombing other countries and have a very unjust trade system. Let's go through some headlines. You mentioned there how politicians opportunistically, especially politicians of the right opportunistically, use sort of trumped up migrant crises to distract from other policy areas where they're growing over the working class. The media Obviously, it goes without saying. Have a massive role in this. I've got a bunch of headlines, which are just from the past week. So these are all from the past seven days. You've got the Daily Express. It's a national emergency. Anger at migrant crisis. So a national emergency. The Sunday Telegraph. The migrant crisis puts Tories in peril. So significant. So this could bring down a government. Daily Express again. Pretty's fury at EU over migrant crisis. As I've said. European countries in general, or at least our our closest neighbours, take in way more refugees than we do. The Times, Patel, blames EU for mass migration in Channel. That's the same point as I made before, um, which is that we are relatively stingy when it comes to granting people asylum. And the Times, migrant to be held in Albania. So this is one of the ways I think the Tories are keeping migration on the front pages, which is every now and again they just brief some sort of new plan as to where they're going to house migrants they keep saying what we want to do is we want to disincentivize people crossing the channel by instead of processing people in britain if they arrive in britain we'll ship them immediately to some third country i think it was mentioned in the last couple of days that that could be the falklands obviously on this day of the week it was albania it turned out that albania hadn't been contacted about this plan Barnaby, i want your thoughts on the media and i suppose the causality of this is lots of people say you know british politicians and especially labour ones if you're thinking about new labour you might say tony blair wasn't necessarily a xenophobe he was many things but he wasn't necessarily a xenophobe but they had to be quite xenophobic because they ended up following the demands of the right wing press do you think that's the direction of channel that that our politicians are always anti-migrant because our press is or is the press
1: just just following our political leaders Well, let's take the Blair government as a very good example. There's a story of uh, those charts that they used to have, that lots of politicians have, of the week's news and how the government was polling. And they would see that they were polling well on every issue except migration, and then make a decision Or that they were being covered well in the right-wing press on every issue, even at points except migration, and then make a decision, not that they would try to use some of the political capital they had on other issues in order to defend migrants, but instead to try to attack migrants as well. And so New Labour didn't just follow in the Tory footsteps and, and reinforce the same kind of language as the Tories, reactively, defensively. A lot of the criticism on the left is, oh, they just didn't do enough good, you know, they were too passive. Migration is a very good example, among many others, uh, where the Blair government actively uh, engendered a dramatic shift to the right, David Blunkett's crackdowns and panics about bogus asylum seekers, the kind of early culture war panics about left-wing lawyers daring to help asylum seekers. My first political activity, in fact, it's where I was politicized, was going to volunteer at a drop-in center run by my synagogue uh, near me for destitute asylum seekers and seeing people in real suffering. I remember asking a child, seven-year-old kid, I was myself a kid helping out, and I said, I had a present, a toy. I said, what what would you like if you could have anything? Uh, Thinking he might say he wanted a toy car, and I'd give it to him. And he said, I'd like a bed, a seven-year-old kid. And it was coming to realize, my politicizing experience, that this suffering was entirely unnecessary, entirely politically caused, because the Blair government had removed from asylum seekers a right that even Thatcher had let them have, which was the right to work while they were seeking asylum, and had replaced that right with demeaning uh, uh, tiny vouchers for supermarkets that they often had to walk long distances to reach. Incidentally, after all that, so after all that confected panic by new Labour, forcing people into immense suffering in detention centres, forcing them into the Home Office, the Fair Select Committee even said, deliberate policy of destitution. That was a Labour government. Then Michael Howard ran a whole election campaign in 2005, people remember, on the claim that talking about migration was forbidden in Britain and that Britain was a soft touch on migration. So it's always been a circuit of politicians and journalists reinforcing each other's bigotries. They've used two techniques also that are just worth mentioning briefly, I think, to reinforce those bigotries. One is this distinction between genuine good refugees who just suffer and want our protection and crafty, bad economic migrants that we have to keep out. And the the history of the recent European migration crisis since 2015 is very clear that the the distinction is used to make life harder for everyone trying to travel across borders. So you what, the moment you craft a division between deserving and undeserving poor, basically, uh, that ends up putting more and more people in the pool of the undeserving. So in 2015, Syrians, Iraqis, Afghans were all deserving. A few years later, the Iraqis are canceled and they don't deserve protection anymore. Pakistanis don't deserve protection anymore. So this distinction between good refugees and undeserving migrants is particularly brutal and insidious because it's used to suggest that the, that the crafty migrants are really the villains because they're keeping the decent, honest asylum seekers, women and children who really need our protection. It's really the economic migrants who are keeping them from being helped. And then the last thing to say is just that there's a kind of class politics of the border that is never discussed amid a kind of liberal humanitarian language of migration, which is that borders work to lock in low wage areas of the world economy that people can't really leave. And then a segregation labor force at home where people who don't have legal protections can be exploited by bosses. And so just as a century ago, a few trade unions wanted to keep women out of the workforce because they were worried they'd undercut men's pay. But now we've learned instead, and most unions then knew instead to speak about a gender pay gap, we should speak today about a migrant wage gap, not just migrants undercutting wages at home. We should have a class politics that is able to speak about the ways in which the border hurts everyone. We talked a lot about the specificities of britain Um, i want to talk about europe
0: obviously some of the graphs i've shown you show some european countries in a better light than britain when it comes to how many refugees they accept the eu now though is is not showering itself in glory there's currently a standoff on the polish border between the eu and belarus it's left thousands of middle eastern migrants as pawns essentially in a a geostrategic game the eu is saying no we're not going to let them in this is This is basically a declaration of of war by Belarus who are trying to to push migrants on us. Barnaby, from speaking to you before the show, I know you have a lot of thoughts about this particular situation we're seeing. Could could you explain to the audience what's going on on the Polish-Belarus border and what we should make of it?
1: There are currently about 4,000 people crowded on a border in the freezing cold attempting to enter a block whose population, 4,000 people attempting to enter a block whose population is about 450 million. dozen people, at least, are now dead of, mostly of hypothermia. Just yesterday, I think, a Syrian mother buried her baby. I want a world where no mother has to bury her baby for entirely preventable reasons. There are warm houses a mile away from where these 4,000 people are crowded, suffering an extreme cold on the border of the European Union. The response of the European Union is to back the Polish government, which has sent 15,000 soldiers to meet those few thousand desperate people. And Britain is sending reinforcements, sending troops to help those Polish soldiers. I thought we'd left the European Union. Why don't we spend that money on the NHS instead? I thought was the promise. So uh, we have the European Union militarizing a barbed wire border, very chilling scenes, especially for anyone like me who's Jewish or who's Roma or who, you know, who has any kind of family connection to the Holocaust. It's particularly chilling to see these scenes in the same Polish forests, the same Eastern European forests, where once partisans were chased down. To see now heavily armed people guarding, they say, against very, very desperate people. And... We have credible reports from Médecins Sans Frontières, for example, of people in the woods, near death of hypothermia, Polish border guards arriving, and then vans full of men in balaclavas arriving, taking away those migrants and taking them to camps in secret areas, this sounds like truly dystopian stuff, but journalists will go there and tell you that they're not allowed to enter, the Polish government's declared a state of emergency in this area, they're not allowed to enter this martial law governed zone so that people are being disappeared by the European Union into somewhere that journalists can't reach. The really extraordinary thing, I think, is that in the midst of that kind of dehumanization, the reaction from much of the British media is to worry about the other governments to the east, the government of Belarus and the government of Russia that are allowing these desperate people to reach Europe when they should be doing Europe's dirty work is the implication and keeping away migrants who want to reach Europe and ensuring that Europe doesn't have to do the work of barbed wire fences itself because other governments that it doesn't like is doing that work. And then maybe we can pass resolutions in the European Parliament condemning their barbarism while celebrating our enlightened European values. But the moment they fail to do it, we have journalists, BBC journalists on the border between Poland and Belarus, seeing people who want to tell those journalists that they are dying of cold and the journalists are asking them instead, is it true that the Belarusian government has paid you and helped you to get here? Um, I think this is really twisted stuff, but it tells you something very serious about the nature of the European Union. I take a lot of my arguments here from my, my friend, Chloe Haralambos, who works uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, she and I wrote an article for Novara together, works in migrant rescue at Sea Watch. Uh, she and I wrote an article for Novara together where we said, if the EU did not exist, racists would have to invent it. It's not only a concentrated mechanism for the projection of a neo-colonial European power overseas. It's also a buffer to keep migrants away from Germany, France, and until recently, Britain, by ensuring that border states of the European Union do that dirty work before migrants get to those uh, wealthy. States, and also by ensuring that other countries to the east or the south of Europe are paid off or otherwise enjoined by European powers to do the dirty work of uh, taking back migrants. So the EU does uh, various fragile deals with the Erdogan government in Turkey to keep millions of migrants and refugees in Turkey and not reaching Greek shores. We now know that the Greek government, which is a kind of poster child, the right-wing Mitsotakis government, a kind of poster child of the European Union, uh, is carrying out highly illegal pushbacks where they take migrants who've already reached Greece, the New York Times and others have exposed, and take them back to Turkey, uh, breaking the law. In order to keep Europe safe, someone has to break its humanitarian law and and basic uh, refugee law. Uh, The EU-Libya deal, the Italy-Libya deal, sees militias established as a so-called Libyan coast guard, sometimes the very same militias that do the people smuggling, um, who are then paid by the European Union to take people back to Libya, where they are taken into slave labor camps and tortured. Again, we have credible reports from Human Rights Watch and others about this. And this is the kind of politics that the European Union is sustaining. Now, Britain is in a sort of strange position outside the European Union that it has to try to mimic that work. But rather than having Libya or Turkey as easy villains or easy states that it can get to offset the work of keeping up migrants, it has to try to wrangle with France to get France to do it. But so the whole European apparatus of migration, including the civilized language of Merkel saying she'll let in uh, 10,000 migrants and appearing as a humanitarian hero for it, uh, depends on this architecture of deflection which has reached a new extreme where we have people dying of cold at a border and all of the media wants to talk about how the government on the other side of the border is to blame rather than the government uh, erecting barbed wire and keeping them from getting in. This really should be the death of the language of humanitarian civilized Europe, but it's a language that's lasted centuries uh, and has always been empty.
0: Was there a brief moment when it wasn't empty? So, say When Angela Merkel said, we're going to accept a million Syrian refugees, they did, they integrated them well. Was that a one- Sort of rare kink in the armory of the European tendency to essentially, as you say, sort of externalize it. You're trying to push back the border. The migrant crisis in 2015 was because Europeans had to be aware of the people who were dying trying to get to Europe. Now that sort of humanitarian disaster is pushed back to, to Libya and, and Turkey. It's less of a problem because we don't see it. I think you know Boris Johnson when he says it's a tragedy what's happened in, in the Channel. It's probably a tragedy that this has happened so close to Britain. He preferred to be externalizing that humanitarian disaster a little bit further away. Do do you think that that moment in, in 2015 when Merkel made that pledge was a genuine moment where Europe looked slightly different?
1: I think that the trajectory since 2015 has been towards honing this distinction between refugees and economic migrants, those worthy of our protection and those skimping off the system uh, who can be cast as the real villains of the story, uh, just like we have the the people smugglers cast as the real villains of the story uh, rather than uh, um, those who establish the conditions that people need to flee. So that the humanitarian moment of Europe's summer of migration in 2015, in which Angela Merkel had this uh, sudden U-turn, you'll remember the scenes where she told a child in a school asking if families could come to Germany. And Merkel said no. Uh, And then Aylan Kurdi, a Syrian child, washed up on a beach and Europe's conscience turned. Um, And there was this humanitarian language about the need to help refugees. At the same time, a distinction hardened between deserving refugees, undeserving economic migrants. And we've seen a pattern since then of the category deserving refugee shrinking, the category undeserving migrant expanding. So this is a, a kind of very convenient political language because it allows you both to perform your humanitarian virtue, and to narrow the number of people you allow in. And then thirdly, to blame the people you're not allowing in for uh, the the, the brutality. So if some genuine refugees get stuck in the net and unfortunately don't make it through, if the asylum process is long and bureaucratic and very difficult, you should blame those troublesome economic migrants who are making things difficult for everyone, who are are crowding onto the boats they shouldn't be, and so taking the places of genuine refugees. That's been the pattern of European policy since 2015. Uh, So I think the humanitarianism has been very shallow.
0: Stephanie Collins tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. We do have a crisis, but it isn't the one the media is reporting. We should be focusing on the reasons people are choosing such unsafe passage to flee a situation that makes the danger worth it. I think that's incredibly well put. We're going to go on to a next related story because it's about the, the migration infrastructure in the UK and how it's failing to respect people's rights. The windrush scandal wasn't exceptional because it was an injustice imposed by the Home Office on people of color. Instead, it was exceptional because it was a rare occasion when an injustice imposed by the Home Office had political consequences. As you remember, back in 2017 when the full scale of the Windrush scandal came to light, it was a genuine political outrage. The Home Secretary at the time had to resign. The Home Office was found to have denied rights to thousands of people who had arrived as commonwealth citizens. Some were deported. This was a big deal. It's rare to see a Home Secretary resign because of an injustice done to people of colour. It seemed like a watershed moment. However, four years after that scandal, it appears that the Home Office has learnt very little and the victims of the Windrush outrage are still suffering at the hands of the Home Office. That's because they've been left unable to claim compensation to which they are entitled. The compensation scheme is the subject of a report from a cross-party group of MPs, so it's the Home Affairs Select Committee, and they have found that just 5% of victims of the Windrush scandal have been offered compensation compared to the, to the number of people who, who are believed to be entitled to to it, So according to the findings of the cross-party group of MPs, instead of the expected 15,000 applicants for the government's Windrush compensation scheme, only 3,000 have applied. Of those 3,000 applicants, only 864 have received a payout. So we can go to that report in The Guardian. The new report identifies a litany of flaws in the design and operation of the compensation scheme, including an excessive burden on claimants to provide documentary evidence of the losses they suffered, long delays in processing applications and making payments, inadequate staffing of the scheme, and a failure to provide urgent and exceptional payments to those in desperate need. We have got a quote from that report from the Home Affairs Select Committee, they said no amount of compensation could ever repay the fear, humiliation, hurt and hardship that was caused to individuals who were affected. That the design and operation of this scheme contained the same bureaucratic insensitivities that led to the Windrush scandal in the first place is a damning indictment of the Home Office and suggests that the culture change it promised in the wake of the scandal has not yet occurred. To discuss these findings of, of the Home Affairs Select Committee. I'm joined now by Maurice McLeod, Chief Executive of the NGO. Race on the agenda. This report here from this cross-party group of MPs, how significant is this? And does it show that the Home Office has really learned nothing since 2017?
2: It's not really surprising to anyone that's been, been working with um, with the Windbrush generation or looking into the scandal. It's, you know, there's nothing particularly shocking in there. Um, we know for we've known for ages that that hardly anyone is getting access to this compensation, um, as, as you sort of said in your in your sort of lead up to this. It's very rare for justice to find on behalf of people of colour. So it was like, wow, you've actually accepted that that this was absolutely wrong, and that you're going to. The Conservatives made a big thing about there being no cap on the amount of compensation that they would pay, and and they were going to put things right. And now, you know, four years later, like you just said, only one in five people. Applied and only one in 20 have actually had any uh, you know the compensation that they're due um 23 people have died waiting for this it's it's pretty shocking that that we're still in this situation but so the report in itself is just saying the stuff that we know whether it has an impact it should do i mean it heads should roll but i'm fairly certain they won't
0: from the bits of the report i've read i have to you know i admit i haven't read the whole thing and um, the suggestion seems to be that there are, there are too many hoops for people to jump through to apply for this and then once you've applied it's too slow to to come to any kind of conclusion so as you said 23 people have, have died waiting for a decision to be made is this incompetence or is this malice or i suppose the third option is this just the home office don't want to part with this money so they're deliberately trying to make it difficult to claim
2: I don't think it's the third one. I, I think that, um, as I think the report says, the same problems that kind of led to the scandal, the same inbuilt lack of understanding, the same the same issues that sort of said, oh, well, of course people will turn up with passports because everyone's got a passport because we all go on holiday twice a year. That sort of mentality is embedded within the Home Office. So when they provide uh, you know, a load of forms that, that are really quite difficult to work your way through and they ask for evidence that they assume everyone's got and they haven't, it's that sort of inbuilt uh, insensitivity, as the, as the report says, that being found out, again, it's why us and a number of other anti-racist sort of groups have been arguing for ages that this shouldn't be done by the Home Office. The other thing is there's a massive lack of trust uh, with, understandably, you know, Black communities in the Home Office anyway. You know, they, this is the same, the same people who were trying to chuck you out of the country and deny you, you know, deny you access to the rights that your parents probably came over here to save. Those same people are, are who you've got to go tap in hand to and, and ask for some money and trust that they're not going to do anything dodgy that you know, they're not going to find something else about you and, and try and find a reason of, to throw you out of here. So yeah, there's so many inbuilt things here. I think that as, as has been said for ages, this need is needed to and still needs to be handled by an independent organization. There are loads of community groups that, that the communities do trust. There are loads of organizations out there that, that could. Get in touch with these people and, and help them through the process. It doesn't seem to be a massive drive to doing that. Maybe it's fear of what sort of stories will come out and how will the government look. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the, the reasoning is, but the fact that it's still being done by the Home Office and it's still being done, I would say badly is is, is shameful. Really,
0: this story relates especially to this this compensation scheme and people's ability to, to claim it. I'd like to know what else your understanding is of how that Windrush scandal still affects the people who were caught up in it. So is it the case that now you know, people weren't able to, to get jobs or healthcare or got deported, but now all of these public institutions are being very apologetic and saying, oh, let's, let's make your life easy now because it was so difficult for so long? Or, or are people still facing a lot of the challenges that they, they faced before we all knew about this yeah. scandal?
2: Because there's that, um, yeah, in inbuilt drive to be hostile and that's not gone away. So so yes, they've realised they made a mistake with the Windrush generation. They're, they're very apologetic verbally or publicly. You oh, know, yeah, this is terrible. But the drive is still there to be really tough on migration. The drive is still there to root out people who are illegal. So a lot of the, a lot of the issues that impacted this community at the time are still hurting them and hurting their children. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that we've got Planes full of Jamaicans that the, the Home Office are desperately trying to, to send home. There's, there's, you know, the, the mood hasn't changed. They, they've decided that, OK, we didn't mean you, but the mood hasn't changed. And so those people and their descendants and, you know, people who, who, are, uh, who have all their documentation but maybe look like, uh, uh, um, you know, look like they're Jamaican, we all still get sucked up into, into this hostile environment. You know, there's no half measure. You can't say, okay, we'll be nice to these guys, but we'll carry on being tough on those guys. As long as you're being tough, the most obvious other people are, are, are us, the people with, with black skin. It's really evident that at some point in the recent future, my family didn't come from here. So it's very it's very easy for us to get sucked up within any, any sort of hostile movements. Look at what's happening to delivery drivers when there have been random stops, random immigration stops because they, are, they clearly look as if they're from somewhere else. So none, none of this, this has changed, and so it doesn't surprise me that victims of Windrush are still being caught up in, in, in this same environment.
0: Maurice McLeod, thank you. thank you so much for joining us this evening and articulating so well how deep this problem goes. Thank you, Michael. Let's go straight on to our next story. Nadine Doris has been culture secretary for just over two months, but it has already been filled with a fair amount of controversy. Last week, Doris prompted criticism when she appeared to tell the BBC's political editor what she should and shouldn't report. In a quickly deleted quote tweet of Laura Koonsberg, who has herself share, who had herself sorry, shared a negative briefing about Boris Johnson, Nadine Doris said, Laura. I very much like and respect you, but we both know that text is ridiculous, although nowhere near as ridiculous as the person, obviously totally desperate for your attention, who sent it. That tweet got lots of people asking whether or not it was healthy for the culture secretary to tell the BBC what is and isn't ridiculous, what should and shouldn't be reported. I mean, she did delete it, which is relevant. I think probably she deleted it because her boss said, we do like to do that to the BBC. We do like to pressure them to report some things and not others, but we don't normally do it in public. You shouldn't actually tweet it. You actually have their numbers. You don't need to air your dirty laundry in public in in such a way. Doris has also faced questions over her past conduct on Twitter. Since taking her role, she has been vocal about the need to get tough on social media trolls. That includes by pushing forward a bill on online harms. So she's saying we need to have tougher regulation on people who are abusive on social media. However, in her first grilling by the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, which was this week, the Doris was asked about trolling, in
4: which she herself had partaken. But you tweeted LBC's James O'Brien, as we know, calling him a public school posh boy f and that would, that would fall into the category of abuse, would it not, under your own online safety legislation?
3: Chairman, I... I'm not going to answer any of these questions. I find them quite personal in attack. If you'd like me,
2: I, I, I would say just one thing. I, I, I did question John very closely on this. The, the one relevant point about this is the fact that you are Secretary of State, and should the online harms legislation come to pass in the way in which it is, seems it will come to pass, you will have enormous power at that point, particularly on sign-off and secondary legislative
4: power.
3: I think if you search the number of times I've tweeted James O'Brien, I think you might find it's two. If you search the number of times James O'Brien has persistently tweeted me to the point where we had at my office a number of years ago, probably about 18 months, two years ago, had to write to Global complaining that his behaviour was stepping into the realms of harassment that was at the point which I sent that tweet. If you search James O'Brien's tweets of me,
4: I have. I have searched that because at the at the other committee, including
3: you, not the ones at that the other com- at the other
4: committee, you you said that you'd respond to abuse from him, and I have actually searched that, um, and I can't find this abuse that you talk about. But I have found you asking for James O'Brien to get the sack. You also implied that he had mental health problems. You said, I don't think he's a well man. He needs uh, removing from his platform abuse. And you said, I've had to, separate tweet, you said, I've had to email his employer a number of times. Now, I don't think it's appropriate for for you as a politician to be trying to get somebody to sack. But let's move on to another tweet that you sent.
3: Can I answer that? Please do. So, Mr. Chairman, just what I'd say is that, um, as, along with a number of female politicians, I am subjected to a small number of men who do tweet about me obsessively, aggressively, and pleasantly, and James O'Brien is one of them.
4: Well, I can't find those, uh, those tweets that you mentioned. But here's something that you, uh, you did retweet about, and I'll quote it. I believe James O'Brien of LBC fame is a hate preacher, a liar, a misogynist, a UK hater hater, and an apologist for Islamic atrocities. You're in no position to talk about James O'Brien saying uh, offensive things about you. You tweeted that. I mean, apart from being actionable and defamatory, it's grotesque. Well, I'm glad you agree.
3: I don't agree with you, and I have. You think not it's appropriate? Here. I haven't come here today to answer to tweets about tweets that I sent years ago. I, I do understand, you know, the context in my role as a Secretary of State. But as I said, as a female politician, it's nothing to do I, with being a female politician. Do, it's nothing to as many females do yeah. have to respond assertively to the, to the uh, numerous aggressive unpleasant tweets and i would well looking at your own tweet history wouldn't say it was something to be particularly proud of either
4: oh you'll find no you'll find no abuse in my tweet history otherwise i'm sure otherwise i'm sure you'd have produced it uh, today
0: it's quite an entertaining exchange i mean the idea that because she's a female person in public life she has to retweet the kind of things she retweeted doesn't really stack up for me i do have some sympathy even though it's obviously relevant to her job because she's pushing forward this online harms bill. I do have some sympathy for the idea that select committees shouldn't be about past tweets. We've all tweeted things. The problem, though, is that the talk did get onto more substantive policy, in particular the future of Channel 4. And on that, she was no more convincing.
3: So I would argue that to say that just because Channel 4 has been established as a public service broadcaster and just because it's in receipt of public money, we should never kind of audit the future of Channel 4 and we should never evaluate how Channel 4 looks in the future and whether or not it's a sustainable and viable model. It's quite right that the government should do that.
4: But, but Channel 4 is not like the BBC. Uh, it, it, it's not in receipt of licence fee money. It, no. it, it makes its money from commercial operations.
3: And... So although it's yeah, and that I mean there are a range of views. Obviously Channel Four has taken a particular position uh, on the future. Um, there's so can I just say that the discussions about the what we do with Channel Four and how we evaluate Channel Four also happened before I arrived yeah. in my post. I've yeah, no, picked no. this up and and I feel just so sort of, I was looking to Sarah to to clarify what you just said on the on the funding.
0: I love that i think we're gonna go back because can we see just her answer well you know focus on her answer because the the first thing she says there when she's been categorically proven wrong uh yeah about that you know she's the secretary of state and she's just been told you know on it's being filmed it's live she's just been told that she doesn't know something really significant about a really significant part of her job she thinks that channel 4 gets public funding she's told in front of all of these mps no it doesn't and uh I think we can take a look. We're going to take a look at that again.
3: So, although it's, yeah, and that, I mean, there are a range of views, obviously. And, but
0: that civil servant who is sitting next to her is going to get some kudos when she gets back to the office because Nadine Doris was very much saved there. Barnaby, I want to bring you in on this. Your thoughts on either Nadine Doris sending late night trolley tweets about James O'Brien or
1: her not knowing very much about channels she is supposed to regulate. Well, Nadine Doris is uh, one of a kind in British politics, but she exemplifies a broader problem, and she exemplifies it very clearly, which is an apparently strange kind of coexistence. The coexistence of a great panic about so-called cancel culture, a claim that the left has become authoritarian and repressive and is shutting down free speech, emanating from a political right, which has taken on increasingly uh, uh, aggressively uh, and worryingly top down, that is from the state, uh, authoritarian dynamics. So the same culture secretary who complains about anonymous Twitter accounts and quite nastily or or bizarrely or both uses the death, the murder of a politician uh, to launch a campaign about anonymous Twitter accounts, the same politician who does that, the same culture secretary is involved in trying to push through Paul Dacre to run Ofcom to heavily politicize uh, a crucial regulatory body in British media, trying to privatize Channel 4 uh, because Channel 4 dissents basically, because it's seen as a space slightly free from BBC impartiality regulations and the government doesn't like its dissent, while also stifling the space for for, for dissent at the BBC uh, and trying to use impartiality, the new director general trying to use impartiality to stifle dissent there, uh, attacking an organization as boring as the National Trust um, for daring, we have Tory MPs attacking, uh, for daring to uh, talk about links between properties that they run and slavery. We've been talking a lot tonight about racism and migration Tory MPs attacking Britain's leading, really Britain's only, uh, race equality think tank, the Runnymede Trust, which has come under attack from from the government. So there's a kind of chilling of the space of dissent that seems bizarrely to coexist with a worry about cancel culture. I don't think, in fact, it is that bizarre. I think we can understand a lot of the worries about cancel culture today as a kind of backlash politics, which is where the left has made advances in struggles against racism and struggles against uh, patriarchy and misogyny, for example. It's not easy to respond to those advances by saying, actually, I quite like racism and I think women belong at home, but it is easy to say, oh, the problem is these militant loud activists who've gone too far. So that the way that you defend those old systems of oppression is by focusing on the militancy of their opponents and casting them as a real threat. And this is a a very, very traditional uh, model, Uh, but it is today uh, taken to uh, quite extreme lengths. We see a new uh, so-called sort of free speech university being established in the United States, uh, hiring academics who've been canceled run by, among others, Barry Weiss, who specializes in uh, trying to harass and intimidate uh, academics who support Palestinian human rights. So this apparently strange contradiction between a politics that is very obsessed uh, with anxieties about the left canceling people, while in fact there's a genuine cancel culture, uh, not from a few angry people on Twitter, and there have always been angry people, maybe social media amplifies it, uh, but, but more worryingly from the state and from uh, companies as well. And I think we should think of that not as the leftists sometimes want to do just as a free speech issue. We should think of it as an issue of a backlash against advances that the left has made, where uh, the the repressive dynamic takes hold uh, as a way of avoiding saying what they actually want to say, uh, which is that they don't like the fact that Channel 4 dissents and that there is dissent in the media and that the Runnymede Trust dares to talk about racism and the National Trust dares to talk about slavery.
0: I'm sure the bosses at Channel 4 were actually delighted that Nadine Doris publicly showed she has no idea how that channel works because I I presume she is trying to make their life pretty difficult. And we've got a good comment, Greg McGregor. Doris's responses to criticism clearly highlight the problem of focusing politics around identity over class can easily be used by charlatans. I see what you're getting at. I suppose one thing I'd contest there is you do often see politicians do it about class as well. So class can be an identity. So this is more someone saying don't judge what I'm saying on, on the value of what I've said, judge it on my personal identity. So That can be gender, that can be class, can be, can be a bunch of things. Basically, Nadine Doris there was saying, oh, if, don't, if I'm wrong, don't judge me too harshly, which for someone who is a secretary of state, you know, whatever identity group they are from is, is not a very impressive thing to say. Let's go to our final story. After 38 years as an MP, Jeremy Corbyn is probably pretty used getting smeared when he was labor leader he was called a dangerous marxist a terrorist sympathizer and a vicious racist he usually took it on the chin however every now and again the former labor leader calls in the lawyers we saw this happen with tory mp ben bradley who was forced to apologize after calling corbyn a spy and this week it happened again After a bomb went off at Liverpool Women's Hospital, Tory councillor Paul Nickerson shared a photoshopped picture of Jeremy Corbyn laying a reef at the burning car. Thirteen days later, he tweeted this grovelling apology. On the 15th of November 2021, a false defamatory statement for which I accept full responsibility was published on my Twitter account about Jeremy Corbyn MP. My apology is attached. I have agreed to pay substantial damages and legal costs, to Mr. Corbyn, please retweet. You can see there's a, a longer statement there. I'm not going to bore you with, with everything um, that councillor was forced to write. The please retweet thing is always what's most satisfying at the end of those apologies. That's what Ben Bradley had at the end of his as well. Barnaby, uh, my question for you here, should Jeremy Corbyn
1: have sued people more often? Well, there is a sort of positive lesson there, which is, Uh, When Jeremy Corbyn sues someone, he's speaking as Jeremy Corbyn and standing up for himself. He's not speaking through any kind of institution uh, that surrounds him. And I think for much of his leadership, he was surrounded by an institution, the Parliamentary Labour Party, which despised him in its vast majority. And it was very difficult for him to uh, manoeuvre freely politically, he of course ended up running in an election on a manifesto of renewing Britain's nuclear weapon system. So he was he was captured in all kinds of ways by an institution. And these moments, I think, excite people who like Jeremy Corbyn, because they're moments of him seeming to escape from that kind of institutional cage um, a, a, and speak more freely. Of course, if you sue and lose, it's no good thing. If you sue and win, it's a good thing. And there is a danger of a kind of proceduralism in treating courts as a neutral arbiter of truth and good manners, thinking they can be our savior from social struggles. If the media is saturated with the, agendas of the rich and powerful people who control it. Just wait till you hear who staffs the judiciary. So I I don't think that courts are a way out of politics, but I do think, as I say, that there's a positive model here in being more confrontational, more direct. You know, I also think Jeremy Corbyn should have written a book in his time as Labour leader. I think that that kind of directness, which someone like Bernie Sanders could achieve in the American system because he was running as an individual for the democratic nomination uh, was harder in a parliamentary system, and Corbyn was too captured by an institution which was the Labour Party. And you know, I wish he'd been able to run more insurgent campaigns, critical of Labour councils carrying out austerity, and critical of Labour MPs who've been useless for years. And so that is the way in which this suing is a good thing.
0: I assume the reason he didn't take legal action more often is, as you say, that the judiciary aren't necessarily the progressive force, and one might want them to be. They yeah. seem to have made the right call in this this occasion yeah. we've seen them not make the right call many times before yeah. i think mean, also as you allude to if you are leader of the labor party if you want to be the future prime minister it's not very becoming to be engaged in sort of bitter legal confrontations as to whether or not you are a terrorist sympathizer you don't want to spend too much time yeah. denying you're a terrorist sympathizer because it's not it's not necessarily a great political look he has a bit more freedom to do it now as a, as a backbench mp and especially when cases are as, as clear cut as this one
1: There's also something striking about this tweet. It fits a pattern, which I think is worth noting, which is uh, if Jeremy Corbyn had been leader of the Labour Party 15 years ago, we might have expected most of the outrage and horror, uh, certainly from people within the Labour Party, uh, uh, as well as the Tory party, to have been directed at his economic policies, right? To have been directed at the idea that it was shocking that someone wanted to break so starkly with the neoliberal model of Britain's recent decades, not just as Corbyn sometimes said, with the austerity of the last 10 years, but really more substantively, and I wish he'd said this more, with the neoliberalism of the last 40 years, including uh, labor governments, which redistributed, but their redistribution was easily undone uh, because they didn't change the basic economic model. It's telling that the attacks on Corbyn were so heavily focused on the idea that he believed that people who weren't white had lives that mattered as well. He'd historically believed in in, in protecting migrants and he'd historically supported anti-racist and anti-colonial struggles. And it's telling because I think the real dividing line in the Labour Party between left and right is not how big you want the state to be where the left loves the state and wants to redistribute and tax a lot and nationalize things. It's actually, the the Fabian Society and the old SDP really adored the British state. Um, It's actually a dividing line between people who want to redistribute a bit of money and that's their social democracy while keeping loyal to the basic institutions of the post-colonial British state and those on the left who think that that state um, has deprived many people of freedom and who are critical of it. And so it's telling that the attack on Corbyn here, as it's been so often, is that he's a terrorist sympathizer. And it's telling that the political right in this kind of post-neoliberal age, perhaps, um, uh, tries to win working class support, not by a confidence in old fashioned free market economic policies, but by whipping up a culture war that isn't limited to the sorts of attacks on trans people that, for example, we see attacking Stonewall now, but also sees bigging up of new legislation uh, to give life sentences to people who kill police officers, which is a directly imported measure from the American right. So this attempt to make the dividing lines of politics, um, those who are loyal to queen and country, uh, and an attempt to get working class support on that basis, uh, and to cast the left as the kind of dodgy outsiders who aren't loyal to your values, uh, because they don't love the nation. And the extreme edge of that is this tweet. And the reason it's good that he sued over this tweet is because it is just the extreme edge of a more general framing. We have to say instead that actually it's the left who support and defend the oppressed and the dispossessed of the world, and that includes exploited workers in the north of England and in London, uh, just as it includes uh, migrants and just as it includes people who are colonised and subject to the violence of empire and an unequal world economy.
0: It's it's also worth saying that when it came to it, sort of his his sympathy and solidarity with anti-colonial struggles. It wasn't just right-wing rogans like this, this councillor demonising him. It was some of Britain's most most famous liberals who all piled in to say, oh, it's incredibly suspicious that he spent so much time with these dodgy-seeming Palestinians. These aren't the kind of people we'd like to have at a dinner party. So we we, we do not trust this guy.
1: And the basic thing they didn't get there is they read it as a kind of politics of strange charity. You know, this sandal wearer who somehow cares about people uh, overseas. In fact, Corbyn came out of a 1970s moment, of course, a moment that is gone now, but he came out of a 1970s moment of an optimism in a global revolutionary process, which saw him go to Jamaica and be inspired by the Michael Manley progressive reforms in Jamaica. It saw him go to Chile and take part in demonstrations in support of the popular unity government overthrown by, Allende, uh, overthrown by, uh, uh, by Pinochet. And and to see those struggles against illiteracy in Jamaica and Chile and for decent healthcare and education as part and parcel of struggles for dignity for people in Britain too. So he didn't see this as a kind of philanthropic gesture that he cared about people overseas. It was really the proof uh, and it's telling that the politicians and journalists who tell you that we should care about people close to home by castigating those overseas tend to be fair weather friends of those close to home as well. And that's worth bearing in mind when we look at today's Labour Party as well as today's Tory party and today's media having a brief look at the comments,
0: I can see that they are overwhelmingly very grateful to have you on the show. So, Barnaby, wonderful to have you on for a full Tisky Sour for the first time. It's been great to be here, Michael. Thank you so much. We will be back on Friday at 7pm. Thank you all for watching tonight. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.